Let me invite you this morning to turn uh, in your Bible to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you and you want to follow along with us using our Pew Bible, you can uh, find the book of Ruth on page 222 in our Pew Bible. And uh, I'll be referring to the first few verses and then we're going to go back in the book of Judges here in just a few minutes. Um, I'm excited about this morning as we begin a new study on Sunday morning through the Old Testament book of Ruth, a study that I've entitled Redeeming Love. Uh, Now, while the book of Ruth may be foreign to some people, uh, it is one of the greatest, grandest, most glorious books in all of God's Word. Uh, It is a love story. So ladies, if you like a good love story... Uh, You need to be here. It was The Bachelor before The Bachelor was popular. Um, And uh, it is a marvelous love story. But it's more than a love story. Uh, The book of Ruth is a story of providence. It shows us how God uses ordinary means to accomplish his sovereign ordained purpose. To bring his purposes about. Uh, But it also... More, not more importantly, but it also is a book of redemption. It is a story of redemption, of how a person who is brought to the brink of despair, brought to the edge of destruction and death, is redeemed and receives life and joy and hope and life. And that's in the book of Ruth. But honestly, the reason I really love the book of Ruth is because the book of Ruth is a picture of Jesus. When you read through the book of Ruth, and as we study through the book of Ruth, we're going to find ourselves in this story. We're going to find Jesus in this story. And my prayer is that our hopes, our love, our zeal for Jesus increases as we read of our Goel, our kinsman redeemer, as we Study the grace that he bestows, the mercy he extends, and ultimately the price he pays to redeem us back to himself. And I pray that hopeless people will find hope, that people at the point of despair will be brought to a place of life and joy in their life through the truths we'll read about. But like most redemption stories, the book of Ruth starts out Not on a high. It starts out on a low. It starts out with death, despair, and hopelessness. And so let's read just the first five verses of the book of Ruth. Scripture says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Milon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Milon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. 
This is the word of the Lord. What do you do when the going gets tough? What do you do when things go south in a hurry? When life takes a sudden and sometimes dramatic, tragic turn. It could be a layoff at work. It could be a cancer diagnosis that you were not expecting. It could be the sudden death of a spouse, of a parent, of a child. It could be dealing with a rebellious teenager. What do you do when life is turned upside down and you really don't know which way to go? Well, someone has said there's really just three options. You can ignore your problems, stick your head in the sand and hope that your problems just pass you by and when you bring your head out of the sand that they're gone. Or you can face your problems, see what your problem is and attempt to develop a plan to tackle that problem. Or you can do a third thing. You can attempt to run from your problem. Well, the third option is what a man named Elimelech chose to take in Ruth chapter 1. Now, we don't know much about Elimelech, but here's what we do know. We do know that before a problem arises, he appears to be living the Bethlehem dream. He's married to a pleasant, beautiful woman by the name of Naomi. God has blessed them with two sons, Milon and Kilion, and things seem to be going well. We also have an indicator that he had a good, godly upbringing. His parents trusted in God. The reason I say that is because of his name, Elimelech. His name in the Hebrew means, my God is king. So you can imagine that his mom and dad were godly people who when their son was born said that we are going to name him and his name is going to be a reminder to us. That the God we serve, he is not just some deity in the sky. He's not some God who is not concerned with the affairs of life. No, but he is a king who rules and reigns sovereignly over all things. But this man, Elimelech, while he's living with his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, Milon and Kilion, he experiences both a natural and a financial calamity. A famine arises in the land of Bethlehem and Judah. And he's got a decision to make. Is he going to trust the Lord during difficult times, ride out the famine, and is he going to believe that his God really is king, or is he going to tuck tail and run? Well, it is the option of tuck tailing and running that he chooses for himself and for his family. He thinks for sure that as the famine arises, death is going to be the outcome. But as Ralph Waldo Emerson said in 1860, the efforts which we make to escape our destiny only serve to lead us into it. He will learn this firsthand as he dives into the land of Moab and he eventually receives the fate that he was attempting to escape while he was in Bethlehem. And so what I want to do in this text this morning is I want us to see that when tough times come, it is imperative that you trust the Lord. When tough times come and you don't know which way to go, you don't know where to turn, it is imperative that you live a life that reflects your faith, that shows your devotion, a life that reveals that your God is indeed king. 
In fact, it is imperative that you do what Elimelech did not do. And that is to remember your God is king. Now, as we work through this text, I want us to remind ourselves of the truth about our God being king. And I want to begin by showing us that we need to remember, or you need to remember, that your God is king during sinful times. Do you know sometimes during sinful days, during sinful times, it's easy to think that God somehow or another has fallen off the throne. But I promise you, regardless of what's going on in the streets of America or across the ocean in another place, that there is not a, a more sinful time in all the world as what was going on in Ruth's day and time or in the day and time when the book of Ruth was written. Notice, if you would, in verse 1, we have a chronological reference. In the days when the judges ruled. Now, there is a time marker for us. We see here that the book of Ruth is set during the time when the judges ruled. That was roughly somewhere between uh, 1375 and 1050 B.C. And it was actually one of Israel's worst days when you look and you read the book of Judges when it came to moral and their spiritual condition. In fact, if you look back at the very last verse in the book of Judges, which was the book that precedes Ruth, here's what you find. You find a summary of all the days of the Judges. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a sinful day where everybody did whatever they wanted to do. No regard for God, no regard for anything else. But there's also another indicator in verse number one. Not just a chronological indicator, but a, ge a geographical indicator. Look what he says. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah. Now the events in Ruth take place in Bethlehem in Judah, with the exception of a 10-year hiatus when they are in the land of Moab. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because it connects what happens in the book of Ruth with what precedes it in the final chapters of the book of Judges. Uh, in Judges 17 through 21, you find basically two major events that take place and all those events have a connection to the book of Ruth. And the connection is this. They are either about, happen in, or involve people who are from Bethlehem in Judah. And so what I want you to see as we're going to go back to Judges quickly and briefly this morning is as we look at the sinful times, we're going to learn just how you and I are supposed to be able to trust God during these sinfully wicked times, for instance, when you go back to Judges chapter 17 and 18, we're going to find that we need to trust God amidst spiritual darkness. Now, I'm not going to read all of it, but I'll just give you a brief synopsis of what's going on, and we'll read a couple select verses here and there. So keep your Bibles, your fingers limber, and your eyes ready to read. Judges 17 introduces us to a man by the name of Micah. Micah's not a godly man. Micah's an idolater. As a matter of fact, uh, Micah makes false gods. 
He makes these false gods, and he turns his house into a shrine to his false god. And there comes a man to Micah in verse number 7 from Bethlehem of Judah. He's a Levite. He is a priest. He is one who is given the responsibility of the service of the house of God. And Micah sees this priest, and Micah says, you know what? Here's a priest. So what I'm going to do... I'm going to get me a priest. He offers this priest 10 shekels of silver, a suit of clothes, and some food. And the priest agrees to become Micah's personal priest. And it's a sad picture. But here you have Micah built this pagan shrine. And there is a Levite priest now who is serving as a personal priest to Micah. Well, the tribe of Dan. Uh, are needing a place to live in the promised land. So they send out five spies. They go and they, they look for a place and they run across Micah. And they run into the priest and they know the priest. And they're wondering, what are you doing here? And the priest tells the Danites, you know, he's offered me this much money. I'm his priest and I'm serving him. Well, the Danites leave. They come back. Long story short, when they come back, they ransack Micah's house. They steal all of his gods, they take all of his goods, and they leave. And when they get ready to leave, they do something. They offer him, the priest, a better gig. They offer him something much better than what Micah could offer him. In fact, in Judges chapter 18, verse 19, look what it says. It says, they said to him, now uh, talking here to Micah, they're leaving and Micah runs out and says, hey, what y'all doing? What are you doing? All right, and they say to him, this is the Danites, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, or this is speaking to the priest, and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Watch this. Is it better for you to be the priest of the house of one man or to be the priest of a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods on the carved image and went along with the people. Now, what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is a sad spiritual condition being demonstrated for all. Micah, an Israelite, has no regard for the proper ways of worship. Even a Levite has no regard for what God says about the way his people should worship him. And in fact, he's a prophet for hire. He's a preacher for hire. And what you learn with the Levite is this. If a man can be bought by one person, then he can be bought by another person for a better price. And that's exactly what happens. And so instead of the Levite worshiping God at the tabernacle as he's supposed to, he's just going from pillar to post to the next highest bidder. And it is a picture of the spiritual darkness of the day. And where was this Levite from? He was from Bethlehem in Judah, the same place Elimelech was from. But then when you come to chapters 20, or 19 through 21... You find that we not only trust God amidst spiritual darkness, but we're also supposed to trust God amidst moral depravity. And I'll just be up front and open with you about this. This is one of the most astonishing stories you will ever read about in God's Word. In fact, it's such a story that after you read it, you stop and you ask yourself, did I just read this in the Bible? Is this really in the Bible? Because what happens in Leviticus chapter 19 there is a reminder that it was during the days when there was no king reigning in Israel. It says in verse 1 that a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. 
who took to himself a concubine from where? Bethlehem in Judah. So here is a man who takes a prostitute to himself. She's originally from Bethlehem in Judah. And guess what? She's unfaithful to him. Shocker, I know. And when he finds out she's unfaithful to him, she leaves and goes back to Bethlehem. And so what does he do? He's going to go get his concubine. So he goes back to Bethlehem to her father's house, goes into her father. Her father's going to let her take him back, but he tries to delay the man time after time after time. And then finally, after several delay tactics, he agrees for them to leave. And as they're leaving, the man and his concubine, they pass through Gibeah. And it's getting dark. So they're just going to stay in town square. When there's a man who comes by, a Benjamite, uh, a man or a man comes by and he sees them at town square and he says, wait a minute, you can't stay here. I mean, this place is so wicked, it's so bad, no way you can stay here, come to my house. So they go to his house. So while they're in his house, the Benjamites, from, people from the tribe of Benjamin, hear about it. So here they come in the middle of the night. They beat on the door. And when the old man goes to open the door, here's what the Benjamites want. They want him to send out the man to them. Uh, So they might know him, so they could sodomize him, so that they could have sexual relations with the man. It's a repeat of what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the the, the owner of the house says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'll give you my virgin daughters. Take them. And the men refuse. And finally, he takes the first man's concubine and gives them to her. To the men. And the Bible says that they knew her all night long and they brutalized her, they raped her, they beat her. And, and when they were finished with her, it, it draws this imagery of her making her way back to the man's house with the last ounce of energy she's got. She falls before she gets to the front door and she reaches forward for the, thre- to, for the threshold of the door and she dies with her hands on the threshold of the door. It's a terrible picture of what they did to this poor woman. And the next morning when they wake up, the first guy who went after his concubine opens the door and there she is dead. And he callously tells her, get up, let's go. And he steps over top of her to go back to Bethlehem and she doesn't move. So he picks her up, puts her on a donkey, takes her back to his house. And when he gets her to his house, something happens that... that, that Leaves you astonished. In Judges 19, verse 29 and 30, listen to what happened. He said, and when he entered his house, he took a knife. And taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces. And sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt unto this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak. Are you astonished at this? You read that and you think, how in the world could somebody do that? Well, beloved, remember, this is what happens when everyone does what is right In his own eyes. This is what happens when there is no king in Israel. This is what happens when when our flesh leads us. And when we just go with our whims and our wishes. It always leads us down into this path. 
That's the spiritual setting in which the book of Ruth takes place. Don't ever forget that. What happened as a result of the man dividing up his concubine? Civil war breaks out. (laughs) The other tribes come together to wipe out the tribe of, of, of Benjamin because of what they did. In fact, they almost succeeded. They pushed the tribe of Benjamin to the brink of extinction. And then they decided they better not kill out all of them. And so what they do after that, the tribes of Israel then go and they kill out another people that's in the land. They steal 400 of their virgin daughters, give them to the tribe of Benjamin to help repopulate them. They realize that's not enough to help repopulate the whole clan. Then they send the Benjamites up to Shiloh to a yearly feast where a lot of people would be gathered so that they could hide in the bushes. And when the the virgin daughters would dance and marry and sing and celebrate, they could jump out and grab them a wife and take them back home to to be with them. I mean, this... Is recorded in the pages of God's Word. Do you know what we need to be reminded of during these sinful days and sinful times? We need to be reminded that there is a God who is still king, even when in our hearts and our minds, and even when we look around us, we may wonder whether or not there is. He is ruling and reigning even in the midst of spiritual times. God does not sit on the throne during good times and then come off the throne during bad times. He is as much king during sinful times as he is when righteousness rules and reigns. But listen, the book of Ruth takes place in a context where God is not even on anyone's spiritual radar. That's the context in which the book of Ruth takes place. So it is a reminder to you and a reminder to me that even though we live in the midst of a sinful society, we must not act like Chicken Little that the sky's falling all the time. Because acting like that is not demonstrating the fact that we believe our God is king. People disobey God. They've always disobeyed God. People don't like Scripture. They've never loved Scripture. Don't be shocked when sinful people act sinfully. But always remember that our God is king during sinful times. But secondly, we also, you need to be reminded that your God is king during scarce times. Now, back to Ruth 1. Not only was it during a day of very sinful activities, but notice what happens in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, a famine could have been a very hard financial crisis on the people of Israel. They, they, they depended on the land for food. They depended on the land for money. It was an agrarian society. And so a famine could mean certain death. But you know, if Elimelech had been zeroed in on what God was doing, he would have understood exactly what was going on in Bethlehem. Because in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, God had made a promise to Israel. If you obey me when you enter in the land, I'll give you your early and your latter rain. I'll make sure it rains. That way the ground can produce crops and you'll have plenty in your barns and you'll never want for anything. But if you get over to that promised land and you forget about me and you forget about my commands and you forget about my laws, I'll dry up the windows of heaven. I won't let a drop fall from heaven and I'll send famine your way. Now, after reading what we read and and looked at in the last chapters of the book of Judges, are you shocked that a famine now hits Israel, Judah? And the answer is no. 
No, because this is an act of God's discipline on his people. And instead of repenting, instead of Elimelech saying, yes, this is God trying to get our attention, what does he do? He runs from it. Look what happens in verse 1. It says, a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. Beloved, his action serves as a reminder to us of what we should not do when scarce and difficult times arise in our life. And yet in his choice, we do learn something about the choices we make, don't we? For instance, we learn through Elimelech's choice to go into Moab that every choice has a cause. It has a cause. What caused Elimelech to go into Moab? Well, fear of death. He thought he was going to die in Bethlehem. But now, Warren Wiersbe, I think, really hits the nail on the head. And it won't be on the screen, but I'll give it to you quickly. He says that basically there were three fatal flaws in the decision-making process of Elimelech when he chose to go into Moab. The first one was that he walked by sight and not by faith. That was his first mistake. He judged what he saw uh, rather than trusted in a God whom he could not see. And he not only lived by sight, not by faith, but he majored on the physical rather than the spiritual. He was more interested in starving to death physically than living in a land that was starving to death spiritually. And then thirdly, Wiersbe said that he honored the enemy and not the Lord. He said he went into the country of Moab. Now, let me say this. I have no doubt that the Lord may have led Elimelech to lead his family somewhere else. To take them somewhere else where there was provision, where God would provide for them, and they could be sustained through the famine. But I am emphatic on this point. He would not have led them to Moab. No way under the sun would God have led any one of his people to the land of Moab. It, why? Well, one, because the Moabites had in the past opposed God's people. Do you remember in the book of Numbers when the children of Israel are passing through the wilderness and Moab's king Balak hires the prophet Balaam to curse God's people? Uh, it was a Moabite king who wanted God's people cursed. They had oppressed God's people. Earlier in the book of Judges, uh, in chapter 3, Eglon, the, the, the king of Moab, had oppressed God's people for 18 years. The Moabites, those who descended from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter, the Moabites. No way would God have led them into that place. They worshiped a God named Chemosh, the God who demanded the sacrifice of your children. When you read in the Old Testament that the kings made their children pass through the fire, it's Chemosh whom they're worshiping that demanded the life of their children. And God calls Moab a wash basin in, in Psalm 60. No way God would have led his people to the land of Moab. But yet Elimelech packs the bags, tells Naomi to get the children ready, and he walks out of Bethlehem and Judah with Naomi, Milan, and Kilion, and they set out for Moab. And do you know it wasn't an easy trip to get to Moab? In order to get to Moab from Bethlehem, they had to go north near the tip of the Dead Sea. 
Then they had to cross the River Jordan. Then they had to travel southeast in a long, difficult journey. Do you know what I've learned about people? I've learned that if we obeyed God with the same fervor and the same discipline and the same dedication with which we disobey Him at times, our spiritual life would flourish. If, if Elimelech had only put forth the same effort in obeying God that it took to get him to Moab, he would have flourished. But the cause behind his choice was that he was not living by faith. He was not honoring God. He had forgotten that his God was king. And just as night follows day, know this, every choice has a consequence. That choice, it affected his family. He did not go into Moab alone. No, he takes Naomi with him. He takes his two little boys with him. And he goes down there with his family. I grew up watching wrestling. I loved wrestling when I grew up. Uh, and I hated Ric Flair with a passion. Every Saturday night, Papa and I, we, we'd, you know, we'd watch wrestling uh, when we were over there at his house. And, and uh, he, he'd watch it. And we'd always wonder, will Ric Flair get beat tonight? And every time somebody would get ready to pin him, one, two, they'd come in and whack him with the belt. He'd get disqualified, but he'd get to maintain the championship. And, and I just hated him. Uh, but then when I realized that wrestling was fake and it was all phony, yeah, yeah. Hey, Papa was 96 when he died, and he still thought it was real too, so <laughs> couldn't convince him otherwise. But when I realized that was going on, I developed an appreciation for his talent. But, but a few months ago, ESPN did a 30 for 30 on, on Ric Flair, and they showed his lifestyle. Limousine riding, you know, Learjet flying, uh, Rolex wearing, just a wild, wild lifestyle. And there's a segment in there where it talks about, about his, his son. Um, his, his, his son was named Reed Flair, who also followed in his footsteps. But he not only followed in his father's footsteps when it came to wrestling, but, but also in the, the, the wild breakneck lifestyle. Drugs, alcohol, women, you name it. He did it all. And, and in his mid-20s, uh, Reed... Uh, overdosed on heroin and died. And they interview Ric Flair in that 30 for 30. And he breaks down. And he's blaming himself because he says, you know, I showed him too much. I was his friend instead of his father. And, and I introduced him to a lot of this stuff. And now, now he's dead. Isn't that the way it oftentimes happens? What one generation does in, 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 por in a portion, the next generation will do an excess. And Ric Flair's decisions not only impacted him, but also his son, his family. He's been divorced four different times because of his lifestyle. Listen, beloved, choices have consequences. And now what happens here? What happens here is Elimelech makes a decision. And he brings along his family with them. And what we oftentimes see is that the the crops we sow are oftentimes harvested by those whom we love the most. Elimelech reveals that to us. His family was affected and his faithfulness was affected as well. Look what happens. In verse 1 it says he went to sojourn. You know what that means? He just went to be there for a little while. He didn't intend on staying. But look what verse 2 says. 
Uh, verse, verse 2 says the name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, the names of their sons were Milon and, and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab, and watch this, and remained there. He went to be a stranger. He ended up being a citizen. He went to just stay for a little while. His family ends up staying there for 10 years. Moab now becomes his home. And his faithfulness is affected because of that. And you feel for Elimelech in a sense. He had good intentions. But good intentions do not always lead to the greatest decisions when our decisions are detached from what God has said in his word. And so Elimelech now sows this crop. Elimelech has planted the seeds row upon row. And we're left to ask ourselves the question, who is left to reap it? Because what happens is very soon the scarce times turn to sorrowful times. And we have to learn that our God is king even in sorrowful times as well. Because if things were bad in Bethlehem, they're about to get worse in Moab. They get horrible because there is a shift that takes place in verse 3. And the shift of the story shifts from focusing on Limelech to focusing on his wife Naomi. And the reason there is a shift is because Elimelech dies. Look what happens in verse number 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. Now, immediately as they are in Moab, we are not really sure how long they're there at this point. But tragedy strikes. It strikes hard. Her husband dies. And it's a reminder to us that tragedy oftentimes does come unexpectedly. Um, Elimelech dies in Moab. Now, here's what I think. All right, my thoughts in dollar and ninety will get you a cup of coffee at McDonald's. Uh, I think it was unexpected. I don't think Elimelech was old. There's no mention like there is of so many other people in the Old Testament of their eyes being dim. There's no mention of their strength failing them. There is no mention of all of those uh, precursors that follow death in the old age, in old age in Scripture. No, it's just you're going along in Moab and he dies unexpectedly when you don't even, aren't even looking for it. And isn't that the way tragedy oftentimes strikes us in our life? You're not looking for it. You're not anticipating it. But yet, it happens, and it hits us in the gut. Um, just, just last year around this, this time, a couple of a month, a month or so uh, from, from this time, I, I spoke at our high school baccalaureate service, and I challenged our seniors that year to, to live with one foot raised, to, to live at every moment. As you, as you pursue your dreams, live with one foot raised, ready at any moment, any time to be called out of this, this world. That was on Sunday night. The next morning, Jeff sent me a text at, at 4.35 o'clock the next morning and asked me had I heard the news. And, and I turned my phone on. Look, my phone had blown up. And, and one of our seniors, Maddie, had, uh, Alan had, had left back at Lord's service, went to a friend's house, and on her way home had, had wrecked and, and been killed in a car wreck. We weren't expecting that. She wasn't expecting that. Graduating class wasn't expecting that. Her family wasn't expecting that. Our community wasn't expecting that. But you don't get warnings with tragedy oftentimes. They strike unexpectedly. One phone call, one text, one email. 
And your life can be flipped and turned upside down with sorrow like you cannot believe. And it is in those times, beloved, you have to believe that your God is sovereign over all things. And he's not just watching things unfold, but he is actually working in those things to bring about a purpose. Even when we do not understand them and we don't know what they are. Beloved, tragedy can strike unexpectedly. And tragedy can hurt unimaginably because this doesn't just end with Elimelech. Look what happens as well. Verse 3 says she was left with her two sons. There's still a glimmer of hope because a widow in those days and times before Social Security would probably starve to death or be driven into prostitution just to survive. But she's got two sons. And, Scripture says, these took Moabite wives. Now her two sons are old enough to marry. So maybe there's hope that they'll take care of their mama and, 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 and provide for her. And scripture says they lived there about 10 years. And watch this in verse 5. And both Milon and Kilion died. Now listen, it's hard to bury a spouse. Can't imagine what it would be like to bury a child. Can't imagine what it would be like to bury two children. Pain unimaginable. And yet that's what Ruth is going through. Ruth in these first five, or, or Naomi, in these first five verses, Naomi goes through more pain than almost anyone in Scripture other than, than Job. It's sudden. It's unexpected. It's unimaginable. And, and all of a sudden, her sons are now dead. But you know, did you notice even their disobedience before they died? What did they do? They married two Moabites. Two Moabites. They married two women of Moab. And you know what scripture says? God said to the children of Israel about the daughters of Moab. Deuteronomy 7 3 says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. As a matter of fact, listen to what God says in Deuteronomy 23 3. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord. Forever. And that is who they marry. And now, look what it says. That the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Do you see the, the building of what's going on here? First her husband dies, but there's still a little hope because she's left with her two sons. Now her two sons die, and Scripture says that she's left without her two sons and her husband. She's left without anything. So here's my question to us. Is God at work in times like this? Can God work during the sinful, scarce, and sorrowful times in our lives and in our society's existence? Can God turn a famine of faithless choice and three funerals into something great? Well, the message of the book of Ruth is, yes, he can. And yes, he did. Because let me go ahead and give you a spoiler alert for the next several weeks. If you're wondering how the book of Ruth is going to turn out and you don't want to know to the end, plug your ears because I'm going to give you the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey says. And it's important because the book of Ruth is written in a chiastic structure in, in, in the Hebrew language. What that means is the first part of the book of Ruth 
parallels with the last part of the book of Ruth, and they do, and the author does that for uh, comparison purposes to show us something. I'll show you the key to it right here. Go over to Ruth chapter four. This is at the end, and we're even going to read about somebody that we've not even been well. We've been introduced to her, one of her Naomi's daughter-in-laws, uh, daughters-in-law, one of the women named Ruth. In verse 14, after Ruth and Boaz have their child, their son, verse 14 says, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became her nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, Her son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Wow. The book of Ruth begins with Naomi losing everything. Her husband, her children, her desire to live. And it ends with Naomi receiving everything. A son, hope, life, a name. Bless the Lord. What makes the difference? How do you go from verses 1 through 5 in chapter 1 where there's death and despair and gloom and doom and hopelessness to the last verses of chapter 5 where there's joy, there's life, there's restoration, and there is celebration. How do you do it? You have to know the Redeemer who shows up in between. Because Boaz, that bachelor from Bethlehem, makes all the difference in the world. You see, for us, my beloved, our Boaz is the Lord Jesus Christ. And much like Ruth's story of redemption, our story started off with darkness and death and sorrow and a bad choice. Adam disobeyed God in the garden. And when Adam disobeyed God in the garden, just as night follows day, death followed sin. And hopelessness ensued. Darkness ensued. Men lived from that point forward after we were expelled from Eden, following their own hearts, following their own desires, doing what they wanted to do. And it led to depravity. It led to sin on every hand. Destruction, chaos, hopelessness. Unable to save ourselves. Hopeless in our condition. And then everything changed in world history when God wrapped himself in flesh and came to this earth to redeem, to save, to purchase a people for himself. But his coming to this earth, to the human eye, seemed to end in despair as well. Because what did they do when God came to this earth and the Lord Jesus Christ? Did they welcome him with open arms? Did they love him? Did they worship him? Did they say, my God is king and he is here? No. They nailed him to a Roman cross. They crucified him. 
And that day, outside the city walls of Jerusalem, on an old Roman cross, it looked like all things were hopeless. It looked like there was no hope, that death had triumphed, despair was left, and that gloom and doom would be our lot for the rest of eternity. But we celebrated last week that our God is still king. And he's not just king in the tomb. He is a living king. Because on the third and appointed morning, that king got up from the dead, alive and well. And he ascended 40 days later to the Father. And today, he is still living, alive and well. And because of that, because of that, he can turn despair into hope. He can turn defeat into victory. He can turn depression into joy. And only he can turn death into life. That's the Redeemer. So I ask you, does your life reflect more the beginning of the book of Ruth or the end of the book of Ruth? If your life is more like the beginning, sorrow, death, gloom, disobedience, away from God, but you in your heart want your life to be like the end of the book of Ruth. Joy, celebration, blessing the Lord, knowing God, worshiping Him. Then you've got to know the Redeemer in the middle of the book of Ruth. And today His name is Jesus. So I ask you, do you know Him as your Lord and as your Savior? Personally, have you trusted Him with your, not just life, but with your eternity? Well, if you haven't, you can do it today. You can do it now. Scripture says if you would believe in your heart on the Lord Jesus and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so today, I'm asking you not to join a church. I'm not asking you to be baptized. I'm not asking you to follow some ritual Some some ritual. I'm asking you this. Do you have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you do, I'm asking you today to come confess that. Confess that. If you believe, confess it today. And I promise you this. As Scripture says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved.